0: If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to do that. And we'll read down to verse number 30. We're in cur- in c- continuing our series, Engage. engage. We're going verse by verse through John. And uh, Look with me at 25. The Bible says, And when they had found Him on the other side of the sea, they said unto Him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent." They said, therefore, unto him, What sign showest thou then? You can see the skepticism. That we may see and believe thee, what what dost thou work? We've seen Jesus engage the scholar in Nicodemus. We've seen him engage uh, the sinner with the woman at the well. Uh, We've seen him engage the sick, uh, the man with the, the palsy there by the pool of Bethesda. Tonight, we turn our attention to the skeptics. Jesus engaging the skeptics. Do you know anyone who's skeptical toward the gospel? Do you know anyone that way who just thinks you're crazy for believing in God and going to church and um, reading the Bible? And uh, people say things like, and uh, you have grown up with believing, or hearing Jack in the, in the Beanstalk?" And uh, believe that was true. That's just as crazy as Noah and the Ark. And uh, they have all kinds of ways of dismantling and discrediting. And some of the some of it has become very sophisticated and advanced. And even a, a, a regular churchgoer of twenty or thirty years would have a hard time standing toe to toe with some of the skepticism that's out there. How do you engage the skeptic? We're going to look at that tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll. Get into the message. God help us tonight to have our minds and our attention. Many here, Lord, are devoted and dedicated Christians. They, they work all week, a regular job, and then they're here on Saturdays giving the gospel uh, for a time, and then they're uh, here all day Sunday. And Lord, uh, at some point, the schedule can begin to catch up to us, and it can be tough, uh, Lord, uh, especially at this time of the day. So give all of us the strength we need to get all the way through the sermon, uh, Lord, give us things from this message that will encourage us and grow us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we seek to engage skeptics with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? You meet someone who is, uh, wants to debate you on the merits of your faith. What are you trying to accomplish? Are, are we trying to show them how smart we are? I've met a lot of people who uh, they just want to show other people how well they know the Bible. And I, I taught a Bible class, my very first job in ministry... Out of uh, college I had not yet graduated in fact I still had six credits to go I went home uh, early uh, in order to, to work a job and I finished those six credits in summer school and so um, uh, I, my dad gave me a job teaching a Bible class and I remember I taught for several weeks and uh, we gave out the tests I gave out the first test as a teacher and everyone including the pastor's kid Flunked the test. Man, I was so upset. My father, who was the director of the school, he pulled me in and he said, let me teach you something here. He said, teaching is not the display of information. It is the transfer of information. I went, oh. A lot of people, when they engage a skeptic, all they want to do is show how smart they are. And the goal is not for them to be impressed with you. Are we trying to show them how well we know the arguments of Christianity? Oh, I'm a, I'm a good, I, I, I'm intelligent. That would be one angle. The other angle would be is I know the merits and I know how to debate. I know how to phrase things. I know how to word things. You're not going to catch me in my words because at the end of the day, I want to win the debate and shut you down. Is that what we're trying to accomplish, or are we seeking to bring? attention or glory to our are we are we seeking to bring attention to our own name or are we looking to lift up Christ lift up Christ turn to John 12 hold your place in John 6 John 12 verse 32 you're engaging a skeptic they're they're wanting to debate you and listen uh, debating oftentimes becomes fleshly very quick very quick you cannot uh, you cannot win a spiritual war with physical weapons and you cannot win a physical war with spiritual weapons. If you're going to fight a spiritual battle, you need to be doing it through the power of the Spirit of God. And uh, you get into a debate with someone who is a skeptic, it needs to be done through the Spirit of God. Look at John 12, look at verse 32. Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So when we debate or we're engaging a skeptic, we're trying to win over a skeptic to the gospel. The goal is not to win an argument or show them how smart we are. The goal is to lift up Christ and put Him high and so that they can see Him high and lifted up and uh, they then have a chance To believe in Him, no matter how eloquent you are with your speech, no matter how well you know the tenets of your arguments, and you ought to know those things, I'm going to give you some ammunition here in just a moment. Uh, At the end of the day, if you've not lifted up Christ, and you've only elevated yourself, you will win no one to the faith. You will win no skeptic to Christ. I will be the first to admit that some environments are easier to lift up Christ than others. It's not too hard to sing a hymnal at church. But how about when you're pumping gas and the person standing on the other side there is kind of peeking around looking at you like, have you lost your mind? What do you mean are you washed in the in the blood of the Lamb? Not too hard to bow your head and pray at church, but will you do it in the break room at work? It's not too hard to read your Bible in the privacy of your home, but will you sit in a, a, um, a hotel lobby or in some other public place and not read... The Bible through an app on your phone but actually have a physical Bible that people see. Um, uh, the reason why many struggle at lifting up the name of Christ out in the wild is because our inerrant desire to fit in with the crowd around us. Why is secularism and humanism and I'll go as far as even say atheism on the rise in our culture? Because as uh, uh, as uh, more and more people become that, more and more people are encouraged to become that. It's a snowball effect. And now you have an average person who used to say, I believe in God, and then I believe in God casually. Now it's, I don't believe in God casually, and then it's going to become, I wholeheartedly don't believe in God. And there's a cultural pull of people away from the faith, and if we're not careful Christians, we'll get swept up in this desire to... Fit in, and I just want to remind us, God has called us not to fit in, but to stand out. To stand out. Um, let's be honest. The average Joe on the street today thinks that your Bible is not for him. That's what they think. They think that it's okay for you, and you enjoy that for yourself. It's not for me. I don't want to have anything to do about it. To talk about it makes everybody uncomfortable. And uh, Joe, and most everyone else, is skeptical. Skeptical. There's a lot of skeptical people out there. Brother Joe, put that up there for us. In fact, to be an adult is to be skeptical. Skepticism is a virtue. I doubt it. That's supposed to be funny. All right. You guys see that up there? Even people who think skepticism is a virtue, they... They doubt it. Daniel, you enjoyed that, didn't you? Did you appreciate that? All right. Okay, so um, uh, uh, as I perused around the Internet in preparation for this message, I read quite a few quotes about skepticism. You just Google skepticism or skeptical people. And I'm going to tell you what I found around this word skepticism. Uh, Largely what I found was the majority of these people who are skeptical are making fun of Christians because they claim that Christians lack real skepticism. They just buy into the Bible and buy into their faith and they've not really put Christianity to the screws. They've not really tested it to see if it's really true. Is it that Christians are gullible? Or that atheists slash agnostics are hyper-skeptics? Notice this quote here. I believe this will be on the screen. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Who is Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan is a famous evolutionist and atheist. He said this. He said uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. It is quite the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Is that not an extraordinary claim? the claim that Jesus rose Himself from the dead and is alive forevermore, uh, if it is true uh, that that is an extraordinary claim, and according to Mr. Sagan, we need extraordinary evidence. So I would say to Mr. Sagan, if you want extraordinary uh, evidence... Put your seatbelt on because I've got some extraordinary evidence for you around the resurrection of Christ. I mentioned on Easter Sunday that if the uh, if Jesus truly did resurrect from the dead, then the Christian faith is the most credible religion and must be believed and must be followed. So really, the whole tenets. Of our faith, the whole concept of our meeting in church, the whole idea of living separate and holy for the Lord, and this whole idea of of sharing the gospel with others all revolves, is centric around the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus is dead in the ground, and He never rose from the dead, then we might as well just close the doors, sell the property, divide, it up, divide the money up amongst the members, and go home. But if Jesus really did raise from the dead, then we need to get busy giving the Gospel to everyone because He's coming back one day as we preached this morning, and He's alive forevermore. So, if someone questions you, on this extraordinary claim, what do you say? Well, let me give you just really quick, this is not the sermon this morning or this evening, but let me just give you just a handful of evidences that the tomb is empty. And what I would call this circumstantial evidence, but you put together enough circumstantial evidence and it becomes very, very, very cool, alright? The first ones there on the screen for you, the empty tomb, the empty tomb, Um There was no long-term motive for anyone to take the body of Christ. There was no long-term motive. Um, The Roman government and the Jewish leaders had no incentive in stealing Jesus' body. None. There was no reason for them to do it. In fact... Uh, it is commonly reported that there was a cover-up amongst them. The Roman guards were paid off who were watching the tomb to keep their mouths shut and say that His disciples had stolen it. You say, well, surely the disciples had an incentive to steal His body and lie, and the reality is that they did not even have the courage to stand at the cross when He was crucified, and they were in hiding at the time of the empty tomb, and what uh, long-term thing did they have to gain uh, from from claiming that uh, He had risen from the dead and stealing His body? Their own lives were put at risk as a result. ...of the empty tomb. And so, uh, one evidence is the empty tomb. But let me build on that case here. Notice next, the eyewitness accounts. And I would write these down, by the way. The eyewitness accounts. According to 1 Corinthians, there were more than 500 people... uh, ...that claimed to have seen him after he was risen. 500 people is no small number. 500 people is about double what we have in church here on a Sunday morning. 500 people individually made the claim that they saw Jesus after He was uh, risen. And uh, there are secular historians who uh, vouch for that and, uh, uh, and and go along with that who uh, don't even claim to totally be followers or believers. So, what are the options of these 500 people? Well, uh, there are really only three options about these eyewitness accounts. Either they were lying, they were all lying, is it likely you get 500 people to all tell the same lie? Nah, eh, not likely. The second option is that they were all hallucinating. But here's the problem with that. Hallucinations are very um uh very personal. It's not likely 500 people, in fact it's impossible that 500 people would have the same hallucination. Um it's funny, in the morning I come out uh, for uh, a breakfast and uh, on a regular basis I'd say it's a month or so, either around breakfast or in the car on the way to school. Someone in my family, me included, will have a crazy dream that we had that we'll share with the family. And maybe you do that too in your home. We'll share some bizarre dream that we have. You know what's never happened is that all four of us have had the same bizarre dream on the same night. That's never happened. Now, imagine if we all came to church next Sunday morning and we started sharing about some crazy dream we all had, and all 250 of us that attended on a Sunday morning all had the same bizarre dream. You say, that? well, pastor, that's impossible. Exactly. So, they were lying? Nope. They were hallucinating? Nope. Well, the third option is that they were just all telling the truth. They all actually did see the resurrected Christ. Let me give you a couple of more proofs here. Notice the explosion of the Jerusalem church. The explosion of the Jerusalem church. Um, Jesus had been um, uh, buried and crucified and buried right outside of Jerusalem. It's not like his disciples went to some town 50 miles away and saw an explosion. The church exploded right next to the town where he was buried. In fact, historians, both, uh, both, both Bible and secular historians, none of them debate the merits of an early church in Jerusalem, but some historians claim that the church grew in excess of 100,000 people in just a few short months. Clearly, those 100,000 people believe that Jesus truly did raised from the dead. There was enough evidence there for them uh, to gather together and be true believers and devout believers. Clearly the consensus where Jesus had been crucified and buried was that he had indeed risen. And one less or one more uh, evidence here, uh, extraordinary evidence to back up this extraordinary claim is the devotion of his uh, inner circle, the devotion of his disciples, his own followers. His own followers who were in hiding at his death and in hiding at the resurrection, his own followers would come out of their shell and become so bold in their proclamation of the gospel that many of them would be uh, arrested, beaten, uh, tortured, and murdered for their faith. And watch this, not one of them, not one of them recanted the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead why would these men lay down their life for someone who they followed and then died and didn't raise them to dead? Clearly, all of these men believed he was alive. And they gave their life for his cause. They gave their life... In fact, you may remember that when Peter and John John were arrested, uh, they sent them out and the Sanhedrin had a meeting and one of the older, wiser men in the Sanhedrin, he stood up and said, let these guys be because there have been many who have claimed to be the Christ before and there will be many who claim to be the Christ after. and, And as we have punished their leader they've always dispersed and he said if this thing be of god we're not going to be able to stop it but if it's of man it will dissolve on its own let it be watch this we're here two thousand years later and it still hasn't dissolved the church is still present today. The man who died, the man who the whole entire world revolved around. Listen, uh, what year is it? It's 2023. 2,023 years removed from the birth of Christ. Our world today, our civilized world, recognizes the birth of Jesus as the turning point in history. The years counted down to His birth and before Christ. And now they count up from His birth A.D. Um, and here we are all these years later... And his life has changed the world. An extraordinary claim, Mr. Sagan, deserves extraordinary uh, evidence. And boy, uh, is there extraordinary evidence to prove that Jesus is God, and He walked the earth, and He died for man's sin, and He rose from the dead, and He's alive forevermore. Skeptics of the gospel can be placed into two broad categories. Here they are, religious, but misled about Religious, but misled about God. Boy, we meet a lot of these. They, they're they tied into a religion. They have ritualism and ceremonialism. And there's some substitute for truth that they have, have, have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. And they're skeptical of truth because they're believing a religious lie. So religious, but misled about God. The second broad category that skeptics can be placed into is non-religious and God-denying non-religious and God-denying. These are people who, who who deny that God is even real, and they claim to be a theist or uh, against or uh, not a believer in a, a Theo or a, a God. And so uh, Christ did not allow, please hear this, Christ did not allow religious skeptical people to prevent Him from sharing with them the same truth that the seeking scholar Nicodemus and the Samaritan sinner were after. He knew, he knew these skeptics would reject his message. But he gave it to them anyway. He didn't care that they would reject it. He gave it to them anyway. And watch this. If skeptics deny the gospel message straight from the mouth of Jesus, guess what? Sometimes they're going to deny it out of my mouth and your mouth as well. We're not greater than than Jesus. If Jesus witnessed and they rejected him, sometimes when we witness to a skeptic, they're going to reject us. But you know what? Christ was not concerned about his own popularity. He was concerned with an in infectious gospel. He was concerned with an infectious gospel. Um, I just want to say here that uh, there were many Pharisees and many of the Jewish leaders who for three years did not Jesus was God, but when Lazarus was raised from the dead, they broke from the ranks and they believed. They went from skeptics to believers... When you're dealing with a skeptic, they may scoff you. They may mock you. You may get into a debate with them and be in over your head. And they might even win the debate against you because you don't quite know how to handle yourself. Do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. You lift up Christ. Uh, high and lifted up. You proclaim the gospel. You proclaim His death, His burial, His resurrection, His victory over sin. And you leave those gospel seeds on the soil of their heart. I propose that although we live in a, in a skeptical world, we have a gospel that can reach anybody. How do we convince the skeptics? We convince them two ways. By our cleaned up lifestyle and our carefully chosen language. Our cleaned up lifestyle and our carefully chosen language. You be careful how you speak. You be careful how you live. Your lifestyle and your language go a long ways toward winning a skeptic to Christ. Some of you in here are married to a skeptic. You come to church and you're faithful, but your spouse wants little or nothing to do with it. And I would just say tonight that you need to be faithful in living a lifestyle that's holy, and you need to be careful with how you speak. I knew of a uh, a man who attended a church and uh, he had family that was lost and every time that he um, uh, something didn't go his way at church he'd go home and complain about the church to his family and then you turn around and invite them to an Easter service or to a friend day and they look at you like what I'm not going to hear church your church is dysfunctional man get out of here hey don't go home and air out all the church's dirty laundry to people who already don't believe. Amen? Hey, is this church perfect? No. Alright? You know why? Because I'm the pastor. That's why it's not perfect. Because your pastor's a sinner. You know why this church isn't perfect? Because you come here and you're a sinner too. So of course our church isn't perfect. But don't go out and air our dirty laundry to the world and then later try to convince them to come here and hear the gospel. Boy, we must do our best to curb our language and what we say so that people will come to Christ this evening. I'm going to give you two main points and four subpoints under each point, so let's jump right in into John six as we talk about engaging the skeptics. Number one, notice the skeptics, the skeptics. Let me give you an A, B, C and a D. Notice letter A, their religious tendencies their religious tendencies. Look at John chapter 6 and look at verse number 2. So skeptics, let's see their religious tendencies. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Now first notice with these skeptics who was they followed. They followed who? They followed Jesus. Now they could have pursued a magic act elsewhere. Were There are not other people who could do uh, magic act type things. Sure. Remember when Moses threw his, serp- his rod on the ground and it turned into a serpent? And then what did Pharaoh's henchmen do? They threw their rods on the ground and they turned into serpents. And Satan has some power uh, to lead people astray. How many of you have ever seen these folks in the Middle East that can levitate off the ground? You know, You ever seen that? You know what I'm talking about? Um, none of you have seen that. All right, well, I've seen it. Amen. Uh, you, you know what that is? That's, that's the work of Satan. Uh, the, Satan has some power to do some things that are uh, extraordinary or out of the norm. And uh, they weren't pursuing a magic act elsewhere. They were actually following Jesus. Now, they could have turned to the powers of darkness, but instead, they were there. I have found that Satan's greatest tool to lead people into hell is religion. It's religion. It's not. Uh, uh, it's not some Satan. Satan worship church. It's not uh, you know Dungeons and Dragons. It's not uh, any of these uh, Ouija boards. It's not uh, some death type music. The greatest tool that, that Satan is using to lead people into hell is religion. Now watch this. If something over here is a 100% lie and 0% truth, and something over here is 98% true and 2% a lie, which one is more credible and easy to fall for? Something that's only 2% of a lie. And Satan has got people all mixed up with works salvation. Believing that somehow you earn salvation through good works. Or you earn salvation by being baptized. Or you earn salvation by taking the Lord's Supper. And they go to church. And they even talk about Jesus at church. And there's a religious tendency in there to even follow some version of the Jesus of the Bible. They're so close to the truth, yet, yet they're living in a lie. Many people are intimidated to witness to someone who is from a Catholic background. You go out so many, hey, how you doing? Uh, the, I'm from White Oak Baptist Church. Oh, I go to, you know, blah, 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 uh, Catholic Church. Oh, okay. Uh, well, well, here's the track. Have a good day. What do you say to someone who's Catholic? You know what I have found witnessing the Catholics? They are most of the way there. They know they're sinners. They know there's a hell for sin. They know who Jesus is and that he died. You know what they're missing? They're missing faith alone in Jesus to be saved, many of them. They're three-quarters of the way there. You just gotta have, kind of have to work through some of these things and walk them across the finish line. But, boy, Satan has got people so twisted up, their religious tendencies. Notice, letter B, their reliance. Their reliance. Look at John 6, and look at verse 28. Speaking of these skeptics, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Notice where their reliance is. The crowd was enamored by the spectacular. Now, I have not given the background of the passage, and I probably should have done that in the introduction, but just very quickly here, Jesus took his disciples apart for a time of rest, and all of these people followed him into this wilderness, into this desert place, and... He taught them all day until uh, it was late and they were all tired and hungry and Jesus took five loaves and two small fishes and he divided those up and fed the 5,000 men plus all of the women and children assuming that some of these men were married and uh, each of them had two or three kids. Uh, They would The crowd could have been anywhere from 8,000 to 20,000 in size and he fed them with five loaves and two small fishes and they're just blown away from that and he sends the crowd away he puts his disciples in a boat to send them across the Sea of Galilee he goes up in a mountain to pray and the next morning, or rather in the middle of the night he comes and walks on the water to his disciples who are caught up in a storm he calms the storm and gets them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the sun comes up and all of those crowds are standing at the base of the mountain waiting for this man to come down they want more of what he had (laughs) and um, they wait and wait and wait they see his boat is there uh, but he is not coming down, and so they make their way around the Sea of Galilee, and they find him on the other side. And so when we get to verse twenty-eight, uh, they they ask Jesus, "Hey, where, where were you?" And this conversation engages, and so uh, uh, he begins to uh, he begins to engage with them on a spiritual level. And they ask him in verse twenty-eight, "What shall we do that we might work the works of God?" There was duplicity to this question. Notice the duplicity of the question they were asking. How can we do what you did? We want to be able to take five loaves and two fishes and divide it up and feed others, alright? And they were also asking, how can we please God? The crowd of people were reliant, watch this, on their own good works for salvation. We must do good works to please God. We need to do good works. If you stop ten people on the road and you ask them, uh, uh, just on the side of the street, you ask them, uh, what it takes to get to heaven, eight eight, or nine out of the ten here in this area are going to tell you that it takes being a good person or some form of good work. Satan has told this lie, and it's just not true, their reliance. Letter C, notice, their righteousness explained. Their righteousness explained. Look at John 6 and look at verse 29. The Bible says, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe this? What what dost thou work? Our fathers did eat man in the desert. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, I want you to notice this phrase here in verse number 30. Look here. We may see... And believe. You see that there? We may see and believe. They could not separate seeing from believing. They had to see it to believe it. Now, I get this mixed up. Is it Missouri that's the show me state? Is that the one? That's it, Missouri. These people were from the state of Missouri, before Missouri was ever even a state. They had to see it to believe it. They had to see it to believe it. Most skeptics of the gospel are just this way. They want to see it before they can believe it. I remember when Brother Tom was in search for truth. He was newly attending our church. Was that 2020? 2020 he was attending. One Sunday night after church, we sat in my office for two and a half hours, and and, uh, he's hitting me with these questions. And I remember something you said to me, Brother Tom. I'll never forget this you said to me, you said, my name is Thomas, and I'm just like Thomas in the Bible. I need to see it to believe it. Praise God that the Lord gave him the faith he needed, that even though he couldn't see everything, he was able to see enough to to take that leap and believe. And you know what? Many people that you're going to run into that are skeptical, they're skeptical because they can't see enough to believe. They're they, 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 they can, I'll tell you what they can see, they can see their own life. I, I'm amazed when people tell me, I don't have enough faith to get saved. And I think that's a silly statement, because all of us, all of us have lots of faith. Uh, all of us got to church here tonight in some sort of a, some, some form of transportation, I assume a car or, or some auto you, you used to get here, auto you used to get here tonight. You had total faith in the people on the other side of the double yellow line that they wouldn't cross over, and you don't even know those people. Some of you came down a highway to get here. What if you had some maniac run you off the road and kill you? You had enough faith to get in. You had enough faith to get in your car and come to church. You say, "Well, I didn't drive." Well, you have even more faith because you trusted the driver and the other drivers. We all have lots of faith, but we have a hard time putting faith in a God that we can't see. You know why? Because we can see the road... And we can see the double yellow line, and we can see the other cars, and we can see uh, the driver in our car. We can see the steering wheel, and and we can uh, we can tangibly touch it, so we can have faith in that. But a God who is to our eyes immaterial, that we can't see, boy, it becomes tough to believe. And many skeptics, because they cannot directly see God, and they didn't go back and see the cross, and they didn't see the empty tomb, and they didn't see the resurrected Savior. Instead, they end end up leaning on their own righteousness. Letter D, we see their rejection, their rejection. Uh, In all of this, they needed to see it to believe it, and, and they just couldn't get around on it. And look at John 6, verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, verse 60, said, This is a hard saying. Who can believe it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Is it the Spirit that quickeneth? The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit but and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not. And who should betray him? And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man... And come unto me, except it were given unto him of of my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus had used a metaphor. We're going to look at this metaphor in greater detail. This lines up perfect with the Lord's Supper tonight. But he used the metaphor of his flesh being bread and his blood being wine, and they needed to eat his flesh and drink his wine. Does that mean he wanted them to come and chew on his body or, or jab him with an IV and drain his blood out and physically? No, this was a metaphor. This was a metaphor that, uh, let's see, Eating the blood, bread or eating his flesh was receiving, and drinking the, the 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 blood was believing. He's saying you need to receive and you need to believe. It's not about your works. You don't get to heaven by doing works. You get to heaven by believing in Jesus. They could not. Uh, get past the metaphor they were grossed out by that they they could not believe in jesus they wanted jesus to be something that he had not come to be they wanted him to feed their bellies and uh, uh, they wanted the physical uh taking care of jesus was not here to take care of their physical problem he was here to take care of their spiritual problem or their spiritual need so we see number one the skeptic number two let's see the savior the savior Letter A, notice his compassion. Look at John chapter 6 and look at verse number 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and the men sat down in number about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were sat down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. Wow. I've got a short list of miracles I hope I get to see some replay of when I get to heaven, and this one makes the list, right? watching Jesus sit all these people down and take a little boy's lunch and turn it into a meal, a buffet meal that fed everyone to the place where they were full, and 12 baskets, we read, were collected afterwards. And uh, Jesus had compassion. He knew that these people, in short order, would depart from Him and leave Him, but yet He fed them anyway. He knew their motives were wrong, yet He loved them Anyway, let me just say tonight, and this is great marriage advice, this is just relationship advice. You cannot control someone else's behavior, but you can control yours. You cannot help if someone mistreats you, but you can help if you mistreat them. You cannot help if someone lies and cheats and steals your direction, but you can help your own integrity. You cannot help if someone is rude and nasty your way, but you sure can't help your own testimony. Well, I gave that cashier a piece of my mind because they charged me $10 too much. Was your testimony worth $10? Where to show compassion to the world? You say, well, that's going to turn me into a doormat. Why don't you let God take care of those things? His compassion. He could have said to himself, these people are only here for a meal. And these people are only here for what they can get out of me. And he could have just turned them away and sent them away hungry... Yet He didn't. And by the way, one more amazing thing about this is before He fed them, He healed their loved ones. He touched their bodies and made them whole. Imagine if you had a blind sister or a deaf brother and they had suffered and struggled their whole life and you brought them to Jesus and He healed them. And then later that afternoon you sat down and you were fed a meal. And then after all that, you still wouldn't truly believe. Jesus looked at these people and He said, I know that they're going to depart from Me just a few verses later, just the next day, yet He showed compassion to them anyway. It's really easy to look at someone who is God-defying and nasty and maybe even obnoxious and mean and rude and and unkind toward your faith and belittling of you as a person, it's easy to get the flesh and push back on them. Uh, by the way, it's easy to get into a bait with someone online and get into a back and forth in a social media thread and get really nasty towards someone online. But remember, you're not there to win an argument and you're not there to show people how smart you are. You're there to lift up Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead because in that is the power to win them to Christ. Christ we must show them compassion let be we see his condemnation or rather yes his condemnation his condemnation first he shows them compassion and again he, he 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 they come around the the sea of Galilee and find him look at 26 Jesus answered them and said Verily, verily I say unto you ye seek me not he calls them calls their bluff ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled labor not for the meat which perisheth but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then they said, unto, then said they unto him, What shall we do that we may work? We might work the works of God. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Now, before I get into the, my notes here on under uh, his condemnation, can we just hyper focus on 29 for a minute? Can you look at that with me? Someone who says you've got to earn your way to heaven by works. Look at 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God. Alright, here's the work you do to get saved. Here it is. Believe on him whom he hath sent. What is the work you do to get saved? It's not going to church. It's not being a Catholic or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Muslim or a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Baptist. You know what you do to get to heaven? You know what you do? You know what work you do to get to heaven? You believe on Him whom He hath sent. That's where it begins and ends. That is the work that is required for someone to get to heaven. Christ was literally saying to them, they asked Him, Hey, how did you get here? How, how did this happen? He didn't answer their question. Uh, in fact, you find their question in, 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 in 25, 24 and 25. Christ was literally saying, I see right through your question. He said, I see your heart. I see your sin. I see your motive. And works will not get you into heaven. Works will not get you into heaven. Letter C. We see his clarification. His clarification. Look at John 6 and look at verse 32. Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven. That manna they ate, that was not the bread from heaven. That was a bread from heaven. It was not the bread from heaven. But my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. So now Jesus is metaphorically comparing himself to manna. 33. For the bread... Of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto Him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now, Jesus is talking about spiritual bread. They're fixated on physical bread. They want food for the rest of their life. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me, shall never, ever thirst, shall never thirst, they wanted. you know what they wanted Jesus to be for them, they wanted Jesus to be a magician, that's what they wanted, they wanted a magician, Uh, throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even the early 2000s, there were these faith healers, that had just massive crowds, that followed them, and they would go and have healing services, and bring people up on the platform, and Lay hands on them and they'd fall out on the platform. And, and, um, I believe there were probably even some staged actors there who would come up in a wheelchair and walk off the platform. And, uh, they were, you know what these people want? The same thing that they wanted here in the Bible. They did not want salvation. They did not want a spiritual freedom. They didn't want spiritual food. They were looking for the physical. They were looking for a magician. And my friend, uh, God may or may not heal you of blindness or paralysis here on earth, but one day if you believe in Him and He heals your sin problem, He's going to heal you of those things in heaven. They wanted a magician. They wanted the same thing the wandering Israelites wanted. They just wanted that physical bread. And Jesus said, I'm not here to give you physical bread. I'm here to give you The bread of heaven. I'm here to give you the bread of eternal life. Now, Nicodemus, Jesus was... Look, John chapter 3. Jesus used a a, a metaphor of Nicodemus. What was it? He said unto him, Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be what, church? You must be born again. Jesus used the metaphor of birth here with eternal life. And then we get to John 4. And Jesus uses a metaphor with the woman at the well. He said, uh, he said uh, if you'll drink of, the, drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. So he's using physical water uh, compared to spiritual water. He gets to John 5 and he heals the man's sin first. And then he gives him his legs. And now we get to John 6. He's using the same method. He's witnessing through metaphors. And he would convey the message that way, but they would not and could not see it because they were so fixated on their physical need. God, he said, God fed your forefathers with physical food. And he said, that was symbolic of me. I am the manna from heaven. I am the bread of heaven. Jesus came to this earth to heal a spiritual hunger that lies deep in each and every one of our souls. You see, we we spend a lifetime living under a condemnation and a curse called sin and in that condemnation and curse, uh, there is an emptiness in our soul that is yet to be filled. It's like a hole that we want to keep trying to put things in, and it just doesn't quite work. The best way I know to compare this is the bread of heaven. If you eat junk food all the time, you might feel full for a moment. Uh, here's a comparison. You ever been to the Osaka Chinese buffet Here in Stratford. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And you go in there and you pig out, right? And you eat and you eat and you eat and you eat. And you walk out of there and you feel like a, 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 a whale, right? A a, a a beluga well, is that what that is? and you walk out and it 's a good thing. I think they put broader doors in there, the exit doors than the entrance doors. at least it feels that way. you you waddle into your car and and you just don't feel real good and, and 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 you lay in bed at night and and you're thirsty because of all the salt they put in their food and 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 you just don't feel you know what you had food, but it didn't really satisfy. And it leaves you feeling awful afterwards. And you swear to yourself the next morning, I'm never going back there. Only the next week to be walking right back in the door. Many people keep trying to put things in their soul to satisfy that craving for God. That craving for Christ. And they'll put... They'll put popularity in there and I really believe that's why Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter have just exploded over the last 20 years, because it's, look at me, look at me, I want you to give me attention, I want you to notice me, me I I, I need attention I need acceptance, I desire acceptance, and I'm not against social media outright if, if you know how to use it, that's fine but by and large, especially our young people, it's the selfie generation, post that after you put it through 25 filters and it changes the appearance who the person is it's accept me, uh, or uh, we go to work and it's, look at me. I can can work hard. I can do well. I can succeed. And, And we want these things. But my friend, the only thing that can satisfy the hunger in your soul is the bread from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and His body was torn on the cross. He came and had nails run through His hands and His feet. He came and allowed Nine lashes to be laid on his back and for his back, the skin on his back to be ripped to shreds. He came and allowed his blood to flow down. He came and died for the forgiveness of sins. And only through faith in him can you partake of the bread of life and have that eternal need deep down in your soul satisfied. There may be someone here this evening or someone who's watching online or will watch this later in some archive or file, um, a YouTube file, who uh, has not put their faith and trust in Christ alone. You say, Pastor Lejeune, how do I get the bread of life? How do I metaphorically receive this into my soul and be saved? It's very simple. Jesus said, in uh, or rather Paul wrote in Romans 10, he said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall... Saved, And I want you to imagine that you've just gone through a long journey through a desert and you haven't eaten in many days and uh, you're starving and you're thirsty and your uh, tongue is claved to the roof of your mouth and your lips are swollen and, and you're desperate and you walk into a place that is a refuge and they have just cooked a big meal. They got a big thing of water and they say you can eat. You just have to ask and you walk up and say, Can I please have a plate of food? Can I please have a pitcher of water? And when you call upon the name of the owner of that establishment and you ask them for that bread and that water, boy, you get to eat and you get to drink and that thirst and that hunger is satisfied. Jesus wants you to come to Him and He wants you to ask by faith for the bread of heaven and if when you believe and receive, you may be saved. Letter D, notice... His converts, his converts. Look with me at John 6 and look at verse 67. Then said, uh, then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? So here the crowds, by the way, Jesus' popularity hit a peak at the feeding of the 5,000, right? He was so popular, he had massive crowds following him. But when he says to them, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to be my disciple, boy, the masses turned around and left. Thousands of people departed, and Jesus turns, and he has 12 disciples sitting in front of him. Can you imagine, naturally, the discouragement that he must have felt? To go from this high plane of popularity to now abandon to twelve. Look at 67. You see, was Jesus discouraged? I think He was. Look at what He said in 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ. The Son of the living God. Peter spoke up for the twelve and he said, We believe that you are the Christ. You are the Savior of our sins. And I want to say to you tonight that if you've not believed in Jesus, you need to give your heart to Him. Tonight, let me just say this, that every Christian here needs to be able to give an answer of the hope that lies within them to anyone who asks of you. Boy, you need to study and you need to parse the gospel and you need to understand it and you need to be able to present it. A couple pointers as I close. Number one, don't get into arguments with people. If someone just wants to argue with you, give them the gospel and move on to the next soul. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. If someone's just looking to make fun of you or show you up, move on. Don't waste your time. But you need to be ready to take someone who is seriously seeking and win them to Christ With the gospel. Be ready to shoot the gospel gun. John 12. Turn back over there. John 12 verse 32. We're going to read that verse together one more time. John 12 verse 32. Ready? Here we go. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Most of you weren't there. Let's try that again. Ready? And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Boy, this isn't about how good you are at knowing your theology. This isn't about how well of a debater you are. Let's lift up Christ, because Christ is the one who draws men to Him, and they are saved. Engaging the skeptic. Don't be afraid to give the gospel to anyone. And uh, if you're here tonight and have not yet believed in Jesus, I encourage you to do that this evening. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. This time of invitation is very important, and uh, we need to make sure that we're ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. Paul warns the church of Corinth. He says, do not take of this unworthily. You make sure that your sins are confessed and you're living a life that's in line and obedience with God and a heart that's right with your fellow uh, believer. This time of invitation is, uh, has many uh, uh, opportunities for you. Maybe you, you need to confess your sin and make sure you're right with God and others. Maybe you need to tell the Lord that you're going to be more bold with the gospel message. You're not going to back away from someone just because they scoff your faith. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to give your heart to Christ and be saved. Salvation is just so simple. How easy is it to eat a plate of food? Jesus is the bread of life. You're not going to physically eat Christ, but you are metaphorically going to believe in Him for salvation. Lord, I pray tonight that you'd work in each of our hearts. Lord, God, guide us and help us to be men and women, brothers and sisters, who love you and are devoted to you and devoted to giving the gospel to anyone and everyone that will listen. Bless our time of invitation. Help us as we prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed.